This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. And we will get to know Child Sleeps Outside, but we will never do it alone. It will be in partnership with our communities. It was really an opportunity to, to, to look back and see myself, see my family, see the issues that we faced and how do we really help people and realizing that, you know, lawyers have a unique skill set that is that only we can provide pro bono legal services. There are a lot of ways that I can give back in the community that are effective, but this is one thing that only I can do that you know, others cannot. And so it is really important that lawyers identify that, that sometimes even if it feels uncomfortable because the subject matter maybe isn't their core practice, that they're, if they don't step up, no one else can. Only lawyers can provide legal advice. American cities are having a crisis. Too many people don't have housing and are forced to sleep outside. And too many of those people are families with young children. Seeing the tent cities forces every one of us to ask, what can we do to make a change? How do I help? The lawyers at one corporation asked this question. They wanted to know how their general counsel office could contribute their legal skills to help address the problem. But there are actually lots of structural barriers that make it hard for in-house lawyers to do pro bono. So this is a story of one extraordinary partnership between a social services provider, a law firm, and a tech company, one you probably know very well. They have figured out how to get in-house corporate lawyers staffing legal clinics for families caught in the housing crisis. In this episode, we're going to find out how they did it and hopefully give you ideas for how to step up and help too. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. They say necessity is the mother of invention. And the housing crisis in Seattle? It needs to be addressed. In the U.S., Seattle has the third largest number of people who are homeless after New York City and Los Angeles. I mean, Seattle needs all the creative approaches it can get to ensure that people have stable housing. So in this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into one part of the response, the partnership between a Seattle shelter services program called Mary's Place, the pro bono team at the law firm K&L Gates, and Amazon. We'll start with Marty Hartman, executive director of Mary's Place, to give us the background on their work with unhoused women and families in Seattle. Hi, my name is Marty Hartman. I am the executive director of Mary's Place. 
Mary's Place is standing in the gap from when a woman or families are at risk of losing their housing or have lost their housing and are now experiencing homelessness. We know the causes of homelessness are far and wide, but the pandemic had a devastating um, effect on the families that we serve. And so what we've seen as a result of all of this is more and more families lapsing into homelessness. And before the pandemic, we were so close to our mission of No Child Sleeps Outside. Seattle does not have enough shelter beds for everyone in need. Seattle doesn't even have enough shelter beds for every child in need. So Mary's Place, they have to triage. We prioritize children zero to two because we know the most lifelong trauma and impact happens during those formative years. We prioritize medically fragile children, those children sleeping outside area hospitals, waiting for that next surgery, waiting for more chemo, more dialysis, babies being released from the NICU on feeding tubes and having nowhere to go because their families gave up everything to get their child's miracle. And so those are the families that we're trying to address tonight. We also prioritize domestic violence victims, knowing that there are not enough to domestic violence shelters in our region. And those that won't find a bed are at risk of further harm and trauma. Yeah, I think that's a lot to sit with. That's a lot for you all to sit with every night that a six-year-old child doesn't necessarily get prioritized for sleeping inside because there's not enough resources, right? It's the nature of triage. Um, It's that it's devastating. Not enough beds, right? So at Mary's Place, what that's made us do is always constantly be innovating, right? Mm -hmm. And piloting new programs and uh, diving into research on best practices. What we do is we pilot programs. We piloted, you know, a shelter program right back in the recession. We were a daytime shelter from the beginning for single Mm -hmm. women. And for the first decade, we never saw a child, right? It It was very rare. And then when the recession hit here back in about 2009, we really pulled together because women and children were just flooding our shelter. And we reached out to our faith community because they had open buildings right at night. We got a van that we borrowed. It was a 15-passenger van. So we started a 14-bed shelter because we needed to leave room for the driver, right? And so we started this 14-bed shelter that rotated, and we did that for eight years, right? Different different, um, congregations, synagogues, temples every night, Um, for eight years and those congregations would spend the night and volunteer and then send them back uh, to Mary's place in the morning. But then we started piloting, taking underutilized buildings that we uh, were slated for demolition because we didn't have money to buy anything. Um, And then that really led us on this incredible journey with Amazon. And in 2015, when they declared a state of emergency on homelessness here in this county, It was John Shetler that reached out to us and said, hey, we have some buildings. We want to be part of the solution. Could you use one of our buildings for shelter? This is where we get to the extraordinary partnership between Amazon and Mary's Place. Now, we'll primarily focus on the pro bono partnership in this conversation, but it is important to understand that the partnership started with an effort to increase the number of shelter beds. See, Amazon had purchased land that had an old travel lodge motel on it. And knowing that the land would not be redeveloped right away, 
Amazon offered it to Mary's place to use as shelter. And so we took over a travel lodge and we brought in 200 family members. And that's when we developed the Popsicle Place program. We were able to pilot that program for medically fragile children and bring those families inside, partner with area hospitals to identify those families, make sure they had home health care and were on their journey to housing. The Popsicle Place program, it's pretty important because it zeroes in on the specific needs of families with medically fragile children. Families for whom the dangers of sleeping outside are intensified and who may struggle to meet their sick kids' needs in a more traditional homeless shelter. But that was all because of the benefits we had received from being in an Amazon building, right? We continued that when we moved across the street because they were going to develop that building. We moved to the old Days Inn that they had purchased. It increased our numbers again, and it was during that time that they offered to build us a shelter. And that shelter has been our saving grace. You heard that correctly. After several years of loaning temporary space, Amazon decided to build a permanent 200-bed shelter for Mary's Place. And in fact, Amazon integrated the shelter into its new headquarters building. And it's in an eight-story building, and it's really the building was sliced in half, right? And on one side is all of our families right in the middle, in the heart of downtown. And the other side of that building is the Amazon offices, right, that we share. And people are working together, and we are all there on the campus together. The building is gorgeous and built and designed for our families, by our families. And it's an incredible opportunity for all of the Amazon community, but not just Amazon, all of the other corporations in the area to come in and volunteer. Even before the new building went up, Amazon and Mary's Place had started a pro bono partnership, one that would get legal help to the guests staying in those shelters at the old Days Inn and Travel Lodge. We talked with Yusri Omar, Associate General Counsel at Amazon, to get a deeper understanding of Amazon's pro bono program for their general counsel department. Hi, I'm Yusri Omar, Associate General Counsel at Amazon in the Business Conduct and Ethics Group. Our general counsel, David Sabolsky, has been really intentional about building a global pro bono program to help serve underrepresented communities and provide access to justice kind of everywhere that we have a presence. And so since the inception of the program in 2014, which we affectionately call the Amazon Justice League, our program has included over 700 lawyers and legal professionals. And are there certain priorities for uh, the Amazon Justice League? We focus initially on the communities where we have a strong legal presence. But over time, our priorities have included racial equality and justice, access to housing, um, immigration, and immigrant rights. I think one of the things that is most unique about our pro bono program is we've built it in a way that there are a number of opportunities for lawyers and legal professionals to just plug in to some of those priorities. But at the same time, if you are passionate about a certain topic or issue in your city or country or region, we give our attorneys and legal professionals the flexibility to think about and create and develop programs that they care about. Now, Amazon was founded in Seattle, and it obviously has deep connections there. So it's also pretty obvious that the Amazon Justice League 
would want to make a pro bono impact in Seattle. But they had to figure out how. And they needed partnerships to do that. And luckily, Amazon already worked with the law firm K&L Gates, which had its own thriving pro bono program in a different Seattle shelter called the Aloha Inn. We asked Shannon Frisbee, partner at K&L Gates, to tell us about the pro bono partnership with Amazon from the beginning. Hi, my name is Shannon Frisbee. I'm a partner at the law firm of K&L Gates, and I lead the technology transactions practice. So, Shannon, could you tell us how did this partnership with K&L Gates and Amazon get going? Well, it actually started a number of years ago. One of the lawyers that I knew and worked with for a number of years to say, hey, we'd like to talk about, you know, partnering on pro bono. We kind of at the firm tried to think about what opportunities, knowing what we've done over the years with our clients, work best um, for in-house lawyers. Shannon raises an important point here. The question isn't just what pro bono could we do? The question is, what pro bono can we do as in-house counsel lawyers? I asked Shannon and Yusri to talk a bit about the potential barriers to pro bono for in-house counsel. Most of the pro bono opportunities that I saw coming in throughout my career at the firm were litigation, heavy research, ongoing client representation. And in in-house, that's really challenging. Some, but not all of our clients, have good access to research tools. Some don't. You know, smaller in-house counsel, they might have Lexis or Westlaw, but, you know, like, that's a, a really b- big piece of, of a lot of pro bono that is a barrier for people to say, like, that's what I want to do. On the representing clients, like for a lot of the projects that we do pro bono at the firm, we have physical offices where someone can come in and sit down at a table and have an interview that in-house lawyers don't have. They don't have those resources. In-house legal departments aren't really set up to take in clients because their company is their client. They don't have the wraparound facilities for client service that a law firm does. Yeah, one of the uh, most difficult issues for us uh, and can be a real hurdle in how we think about and how we set up our different pro bono programs is as in-house counsel, the legal department at Amazon doesn't have legal malpractice insurance. So when we are providing actual legal advice and guidance to clients, we need to think about uh, ways that we can partner with the right organization so that we are um, covered. So in addition to the great partnership that we have with KNL Gates uh, for this work, we also work with the King County Bar Association. So knowing all of this, what did KNL Gates think was a good fit? for a pro bono project for Amazon's general counsel office. You guessed it, Mary's place. We had a lunch and before the lunch, we kind of at the firm tried to think about what opportunities, knowing what we've done over the years with our clients, work best for in-house lawyers. And we had this unique experience at our law firm had been operating a legal clinic and a homeless shelter called the Aloha Inn in Seattle for a very long time. And it was well integrated into a part of our first year program. And so we had people within the firm that kind of knew the clinic model, as well as the issues involved in homeless and unhoused. And we knew that Amazon had this deep relationship with Mary's Place and were building a shelter in their their new building. So we, when we sat down for lunch and talked to them about ideas, I, said, I think that 
potentially doing some pro bono work or clinic within the shelter would be a, a great opportunity. And they said, well, that's exactly what we're thinking. Now, Amazon had the will and the resources to dive into giving legal help to Mary's place guests. And K&L Gates could offer them experience and a model for doing the work. But on top of that, King County Bar Association was also able to provide infrastructure, malpractice insurance, and substantive training. So the work could be done both ethically and well. Can you, um, either one of you or together, describe how the project with Mary's Place works? Do you want to start with the early days, usury Uh, and work? Sure, Shannon. It's interesting because it's evolved over time, right? We launched our first clinic almost uh, five years to the date. Um, So in March 2018, we started planning it in uh, December of 2017. So from kind of brainstorming and planning to actual launch was a fairly compressed time frame. And in those early days, we hosted quarterly in-person clinics. And those clinics um, were staffed with roughly 20 to 25 members of the Amazon legal department. They lasted uh, two to three hours uh, with multiple tables set up for guests to rotate in through the clinic. And we generally served anywhere from 20 to 30 guests in uh, those early days. When we launched the clinic, we took a survey of, and we looked back at the most frequent topics that were addressed in the Aloha Inn homeless shelter clinic we were involved with. And then we created a guide that basically was an overview of kind of the, the areas of law that were most frequently raised. Things like, you know, uh, financial issues, credit, landlord tenant, you know, domestic violence, you know, all the kind of those wrapping around that. And so they had one centralized place where they could refer to and go. And then around that, we helped offer trainings. So we've done trainings on those topics, you know, benefits, social security, disability benefits on landlord tenant issues, on powers of attorney and medical directives. So we are constantly, you know, kind of creating and updating materials and training for the attorneys. I think the general expertise that an in-house legal department has versus the types of services that are needed for um, providing pro bono uh, assistance to clients um, don't necessarily line up from a subject matter expertise perspective. And so one of the things that I think this partnership um, and program has done really well is to provide the support necessary for the lawyers and legal professionals to feel like they can provide um, the legal services and advice and guidance. And we've done that. Um, and Shannon and KNL have been extraordinary in helping, as has the King County Bar Association, by leveraging existing materials and resources and providing the right training opportunities for our lawyers and legal professionals so that when they are in front of a client, they feel like they can be um, zealous and adequate representatives for that client. Yusri pointed out that the expertise of an in-house counsel doesn't necessarily line up with um, what we think of as like legal services needs. The expertise at K&L Gates doesn't necessarily line up with that either. So how do you all feel confident doing the manuals and the trainings? 
coming into this, I didn't have any background in these areas of law myself, but we had fortunately with respect to this program, kind of an institutional dedication to this area that had built up that expertise. And so there was one of my most treasured friends at the firm who had run the Aloha In Clinic. And I was like, you're going to partner with me on this and help me get through it. I, I was... I told uh, Yusri today, I think we both had imposter syndrome a bit when we started this because I was like, I don't I don't really know this area of law. But what we learned really quickly and I would urge people to really understand this, we all have a legal education. We all have these skills. And even though it might not be, you know, our area of expertise and comfort, this this is the, the depth at which we go in a clinic or some of these projects isn't so deep that we can't get a pretty quick understanding that is really helpful to provide services to people in this space. So partially, it's just having the confidence to say, I'm going to take a risk and get out there and get my hands a little dirty and figure it out. And to Shannon's point, in the very first uh, few clinics, we had k lawyers uh, float around. So if one of our uh, teams got stuck or um, had a question that they weren't able to navigate, uh, somebody could jump in pretty quickly and provide that support and assistance. We actually had a KO lawyer at every table with an Amazon lawyer so that there was someone there that they felt, you know, maybe had done this before and had that experience. And so each table was staffed with at least one lawyer and then either a second uh, lawyer or legal professional, because we really wanted to make sure we had opportunities for our legal professionals to engage in the clinic model as well. Uh, and so we quickly recognized that, you know, one clinic every three months wasn't, uh, wasn't enough. Um, and it clearly wasn't enough. So mm-hmm. we moved um, over time to a more monthly model and a model where the clinic rotated. So we initially started at the Day Center, which is a facility here in uh, downtown Seattle, um, run by Mary's Place that has open access, um, and then started moving around the greater Seattle region um, to different facilities uh, that Mary's Place had all over over the city and uh, even further out. Uh, to better um, provide access to clients who may not be able to get to downtown Seattle. And so, you know, we would bus 20 to 30 lawyers and legal professionals um, all over the city to host clinics. And, And that was great. So by the end of 2019, Amazon was busing 20 to 30 legal professionals around the Seattle area, providing legal clinics to Mary's Place guests. And the Mary's Place shelter at Amazon headquarters, that was slated to open in March 2020. So they already knew the implementation of the legal clinic was going to evolve. But of course, it changed in ways that none of us predicted because, well, you know what I'm about to say, COVID. Um, I will tell you, it opened on March 9th, 2020. And oh. uh, still, wow. uh, we had to close four smaller shelters. Uh, we lost 300 beds for families at the very start of the pandemic because we had to uh, uh, prepare for social distancing. And we, we weren't able to in those smaller shelters. They were communal shelters. And... This building that 
we had worked with Amazon to prepare two years ahead uh, opened and were able to bring in 225 family members. Uh, they had their own rooms and bathrooms. We didn't know what we needed in a pandemic, but this was it. So uh, March, March 2020, uh, two years into providing services, uh, we stopped. Um, and uh, I think as much of the world did, kind of reevaluated what we were doing um, and trying to figure out, like, it, was there a way uh, to continue this work? And we recognized quickly, obviously, the shelter staff was in person and they were working so tremendously hard to provide continuous services and access to shelter and housing services, we recognized very quickly that the need didn't stop. In fact, the need was being exacerbated by um, the pandemic. And when we hit COVID, he, he, you know, usually does say we stopped, but we started again pretty quickly. We immediately focused on what can we do during the pandemic and what are the unique issues. And we put together a two-page resource guide specifically on COVID relief and what was available um, because there were a whole bunch of things that were available that were brand new. So we, we put that together and we were updating it frequently as resources came online. And we did it in a way that we could get it into the hands. that could be handed out at the shelter if people weren't there. And then we focused topically on things that we thought might be relevant, like we start thinking about like, what if someone gets sick and what do they do? So we put together forms for a medical uh, power of attorney as well as a healthcare directive. So if someone ended up in the hospital, they knew they could designate someone to you know be the guardian of their children or make decisions for them. So we really did think in that time about, you know how do we address the pandemic uniquely? Of course, the pandemic not only presented new legal issues, it also presented new logistics issues, issues that even the most mobile worker had not really considered. What do you do when you can't safely bus 20 to 30 legal professionals around the city to meet people where they are sheltering? And so we pivoted. We figured out a way to try to do this virtually. Uh, so we we bought a bunch of laptops and headsets and delivered them to staff at Mary's Place and figured out how we could host a virtual online um, clinic model that we uh, initially ran on a weekly basis for a few hours. And, you know, that would not have been possible had we not had not only the partnership with uh, the King County Bar and KNL Gates, but the incredible staff at Mary's Place, um, who we trained on our wonky um, systems to be able to run that virtual model through, you know, a secure platform that we were comfortable with and our IT department was comfortable with, um, you know, and they were uh, not only, you know, providing the very necessary housing services and access to shelter services, but also uh, being IT professionals, helping us run this virtual mm -hmm. clinic model. Uh, and it was it was incredible. And it was a very fast pivot to doing that. And that's the model that still exists 
Shannon, what are the kinds of things that pro bono lawyers can accomplish for a client in a clinic? You know, the thing that's really great about the clinic model is that, uh, and the way that Amazon has structured it, is that it's pretty open for whatever people have in terms of questions or needs. But in general, people often have a problem. Sometimes it borders on legal to non-legal, but they need someone just to help them figure it out. And so in a session, we can typically identify what the actual problem is, help them determine, is it a legal issue? Is it quasi non-legal issue? get them the tools that they need. So whether it's a form to fill out or a follow-up, maybe it's a referral to another more specialized clinic. So we can generally help them, you know, do the types of things where people are kind of stuck and we can unstick them and get them on the right path. There was an eviction moratorium for a very long period of time during the pandemic, and that is being lifted. So we're seeing more questions around that. Because this people are already at Mary's Place when we're meeting with them, a lot of times it's post-eviction type of issues and re-entry issues. So it's um, the types of questions like, how do I get my, my deposit back? Or do I get my property? Things like that, because they're already in the shelter. Um, so that uh, it's we're really focused on the things that, how do we get you back into more permanent housing? I asked Yusri to estimate how much time the Amazon Justice League has contributed to the Mary's Place legal clinics. And it's pretty impressive. So I divide it in some ways between uh, pre and post pandemic. So, you know, from 2018 through 2020, we provided over 1,200 hours of pro bono service with over 50 attorneys and legal professionals assisting in the effort with Mary's Place guests. Um, when you know we pivoted to the online virtual clinic model, and which is actually I should correct myself is actually still weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, and last year um, we had a really dedicated group of professionals and um, lawyers who, amongst sixty-one folks had provided over 750 hours to uh, guests of Mary's Place, which is pretty uh, pretty incredible. Um, yeah. Oh, so Marty, what are the benefits to um, your guest at Mary Place to having um, access to a legal clinic like this? Oh, <clears throat> the impact has been amazing. Uh, at first, you should know that at Mary's Place, 85% of our guests identify as Black, Indigenous, or from communities of color. And they are the ones furthest from opportunity. And having this legal expertise to navigate the barriers that they're facing, and many of those are the barriers to housing, with expert legal advice has been life-saving for these families and has been able to help them regain the stability that they've needed for so long. It is a huge sense of support and relief for our families, right? Whether these actual or perceived legal barriers are preventing them from moving to housing, it's really, it's that intentional, deep listening that the um, lawyers provide, right? The attorneys provide and just this authentic care that knowing that you have a trusted professional that really cares about you and your situation right now and is going to give you the tools right? And it's going to be there to follow up to make sure if you have any questions that they're going to be responsive and to help you navigate this as you journey out of this, because this is where real housing stability becomes possible. That is a really good point. Like both that, um, 
having a, a space where you're heard and listened to uh, is is incredibly valuable. I think um, maybe as lawyers, because we're used to the idea that we're supposed to be listened to, that we uh, forget how um, that can sometimes be rare and it uh, and it can make a huge difference. But I think the other thing that you said is that this is such a stable model uh, that it's not a one-time visit somewhere else on the far side of town where you may never be able to access this project again. If it is a clinic that's coming in to Mary's place once a week, it's got to give people this sense of they have an ability to ask follow-up questions. Absolutely. And that's the critical piece, right? That I'm not out here on an island by myself, that there is a community of support that loves me and wants to help me through this. And I will make it out, right? And I will make it to housing. Yusri, what um, what are the the reactions of some of the attorneys who have participated in it? Do they how do they feel after they come out of a, a clinic or a meeting? You know, we talked a little bit about the obstacles and barriers, especially from sort of a subject matter expertise and not feeling comfortable or confident with landlord tenant law creditor issues or wills and estates, whatever it may be. But I think to Marty's point, one of the things that we forget as lawyers is that we have created an entire environment and ecosystem that can be extraordinarily difficult to navigate. And being a sounding board for somebody who is facing potentially multiple legal issues and narrowing down the scope of those legal issues to sort of a finite plan of action by um, eradicating those barriers to access to justice um, and by listening really is one of the critical um, points of success for a lawyer providing services in that model. And I often tell folks who are going to do it, you really need to listen and issue spot. Right. Mm -hmm. If you can figure out what the legal issues are, then you can help someone. And watching guests recognize that this is a lawyer who is here for me and is going to help me navigate this situation. That's probably the most satisfying part of the clinic. Being able to actually solve somebody's problem um, just takes it uh, to the next level. And so our, our attorneys often, even though hesitant to start potentially, once they start doing it, we find that they, they keep coming back. Um, and that's because they recognize that um, being a sounding board, navigating the legal system, identifying the right resources, even something as small as filling out a form can be overwhelming and daunting for um, most people. Um, but it is a tangible, real benefit that improves someone's life and gives them an opportunity to achieve something that they couldn't without that assistance. There are a lot of different kinds of pro bono work that lawyers can do. We've highlighted a wide range of them over several years of doing this podcast. And I am always curious, what drives lawyers to invest deeply in one specific kind of pro bono work? So I asked Shannon and Yusri to talk about what makes their work with unsheltered families feel like the right fit. 
Well, it's funny. When early in my career, I was involved in arts law clinic at Seattle U, which is where I went to law school and I taught there for a little while. And so I kind of got exposed to the clinic model, which became as a transactional and really comfortable to me. And honestly, I've wanted to do more to, you know, help our city and our population. You know, I I come from a very underprivileged background. I'm the first in my family to go to college. And my mom was a single mom and a victim of domestic violence. And we experience housing insecurity. And so it was really an opportunity to, to look back and see myself, see my family, see the issues that we faced you know, in our day-to-day practice, you know, sometimes I feel like it's very intangible. Like, you know, I counsel clients, they maybe make products, you know, I write contracts, I give advice, but I always say at home, you know, I like to make pies because it, I have something I can see. And the pro bono work is a one opportunity to do something where you can see it, you can see the impact that it provides. And particularly in something like a clinic where someone sits down and you can hear what they're experiencing and find a way to help them. And they walk out the door and you know you've done something. So from that perspective, it's extraordinarily meaningful work. And that's a really good point. This is an immediate you have contributed today. You can name it and you can define how. Um, and it was a success mm-hmm. because you listened, as Marty says. Right. Um, you gave right. somebody your undivided attention. Um, well, Yusri, what draws you to this working specifically with folks who are experiencing homelessness? You know, my, my childhood and upbringing um, was really fortunate and blessed. My parents, though, were both um, immigrants. My mom immigrated from India in the 70s, and my dad immigrated from Egypt in the 60s, and both really struggled um, to put themselves through undergraduate and graduate school to create the life that mm-hmm. I was so blessed to have. And, you know, but for the grace of God, if, you know, a few things go the wrong way, if they can't afford um, housing or, you know, their education because they've lost a you know, part-time job that, you know, um, they're necessary for them to be able to do that or if they have a healthcare crisis at any point in time uh, i don't get the benefit of that throughout my childhood my parents made it a point to help support uh, immigrants mm-hmm. in our community and especially family and friends i remember at one point in high school there were like 16 people living mm-hmm. in our three-bedroom house <laughs> Um, you know, so that was that was something that was instilled in me at a really young age. And growing up in the you know middle class suburbs of DC, um, but spending time in both India and Egypt and kind of seeing the abject poverty there versus the life that you know I was enjoying um, resonated you know, even at a really young age. And then to honestly move to Seattle in 2015 and see some of the hallmarks of um, that kind of abject poverty that I saw in, you know, developing countries like India and Egypt, like shanty towns, you know, people um, and children living in tents and cars and um, being in one of the wealthiest, most educated cities in the country, uh, just didn't feel acceptable and doesn't feel acceptable. Um, and the situation since 2015 has really only gotten worse mm-hmm. in our city. And um, it's something that I talk about with my kids all the time because it's 
so visible and you know it touches you know our lives on a daily basis um and it's something that you know i think we all need to do far better um from a legislative perspective from a legal perspective um and just as individuals in a community caring about our neighbors um and making sure that people have access to the most basic human rights like shelter and housing um and so that's one of my primary drivers and i just happened to be lucky enough to work at a company that had a partnership with an organization like mary's place um, i mean it's it's really incredible work and to be uh, a small piece of trying to help um, is probably the most meaningful thing i've done in my career and continue to do as always i'm hoping this has inspired you to get involved and if you're an in-house counsel, maybe interested in getting something similar going in your community, what can you learn from the experiences that Usri and Amazon have had? Are there any lessons that you, that you want to um, share with other folks who might be looking at in-house counsel, law firm, nonprofit partnerships? So at the risk of sounding really cliche um i would say uh to borrow from nike just do it like really i mean you the, there are going to be obstacles there are going to be challenges but um find the resources that already exist there are so many um nonprofits um and you know public interest legal organizations who in some way shape or form in every community are doing this work who are uh, as you know, as well as anyone, extraordinarily resource constrained, but they have the mental models that you, like any company, um, can plug into fairly easily and bring their staff and their um, resourcing to the issue and to really increase the access to, to justice. And, you know, just do it, like start doing it um, uh, and you'll learn. I mean, we made some mistakes um really early on um there are some things that you know i uh, laugh about now at how sort of egregious they were um when we were developing and thinking about this um for example the very first clinic we held was on our campus with id requirements and um, just an uncomfortable place to um try to help someone um and and really meet them where they are uh, so we learned um, you know, and we change that very fast, <laughs> but really there, there will always be barriers to this, but they are infinitely, um, overcomable. Is that a word? It is now. Um, I think at Amazon, we have been really intentional with our pro bono efforts. Um, and I am always happy to talk to, um, folks who, you know, want to reach out and, you know, we make our pro bono efforts pretty public. And so people can reach out to learn more mm -hmm. um, and how we've developed different partnerships with different orgs in different cities and around the world to do this work. But it really starts with just the desire to, to make a difference. I mean, it is in um, a real team effort that we have what we call the Mary's Place core team. And it is staffed with folks at Amazon, um, folks at Mary's Place and K&L lawyers. And, you know, we meet 
on an almost weekly basis just to talk about opportunities for the clinic, where we're succeeding, where we're not, how we have to update training materials, like who needs to run around um, and knock on people's doors to drum up volunteer support. <laughs> like it is a it is a real team effort with people who are devoted um, and really own this program and this partnership from all three sides. And and it's really fun too. It's a great group of people to, to work with. It's incredible. Misri is describing a constant improvement approach to the Mary's Place Clinic project. And from my experience, identifying a team who will keep asking what's working, what could be better, and what can we do next, that's the key component of a dynamic, effective project. So in the spirit of that constant improvement approach, I asked you, Sri, what's next? We're looking forward to another pivot and another change and evolution in the program. But for nearly three years, we ran a virtual clinic model. And so we're actually looking to launch by the end of this month, hopefully, um, an in-person model that uses a space that uh, we have, a provider room uh, at one of the uh, shelters. Um, and we're going to do a few hours kind of in an office hour style uh, model there that we can ramp up very quickly. And hopefully at some point, maybe staff on a daily basis so that people can drop in. Amazon started uh, doing a million dollar match mm-hmm. for the annual spring um, Dream Big fundraiser that Mary's Place hosts. That uh, Dream Big uh, campaign starts May 1st. So for any listeners out there, even you know, outside of Seattle, um, if you're looking to learn more about Mary's Place and you know um, provide some level of support, please visit uh, the Mary's Place website at marysplaceseattle.org. I'll tell you, uh, being fortunate enough to have visited that shelter many times now, but I remember one of the very first times that I visited that shelter with Marty uh, before it opened, so right before the pandemic, um, we went into one of the bathrooms and um, Marty was just talking about the fact that there was a bathtub mm. um, and the fact that children and parents would now have access to and the opportunity to give their kids a bath. Um, And even though I'd been doing the work for a couple of uh, years, I learned so much all the time. And that really resonated with me. I think this shelter has really led us to down a different approach, right? A trauma-informed approach, knowing what's possible, that privacy and confidentiality families need, how you can really reduce the trauma families are facing in shelter. And I think that's been one of the greatest gifts. The other greatest gift we had from Amazon, I will say, was when we first started working together. And as a small, tiny nonprofit, um, you know, John asked us some really big questions of, do you have a big dream? And what is that? And have you written that down? And do you have a plan and know what it would take? And we're like, uh, we'll get back to you. <laughs> and, but it really forced us as a nonprofit to begin to look at that and what are the actual costs and what will it take to solve this crisis in our region? And I will say that was uh, a pivotal moment for our organization, the impact that it's had on an organization that really knows what it will take and how we can move forward together 
as a community to solve the crisis. And that's the path that we're on, right? Constantly mm-hmm. innovating, constantly dreaming bigger. And now our dreaming bigger has led us to prevention, right? How do you keep families in their homes and reduce that mm-hmm. um, that trauma, but generational impact for decades, right? We're really trying yeah. to change the system and turn it upside down. And that's something Amazon is helping us do right now. And, you know, from the legal clinic perspective, like it's awesome to watch the organization um, grow and develop and pivot. And so, you know, one of the conversations that we're having now with Marty and her staff is as they pivot to prevention, how do we pivot to provide access to legal services? Because if you can prevent, you know, that eviction, it's so much easier than trying to provide legal services after they're in shelter, you know? So it's, it's really neat to be able to iterate and innovate um, as we watch Mary's Place focus on different issues and iterate on their own kind of mission and vision uh, to, um, as Marty says, ensure that no child sleeps outside. What does this conversation inspire you to do in your community? What might be possible for your general counsel team? Name it right now. Start talking about it with your colleagues. Take Yusri up on his offer to talk with you about it. As Shannon said, there are things in the community that only lawyers can do. So how can you get started doing them? Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono.